It's been a delight to be with you, to get to know some of you, have wonderful conversation with you, your patience and your interest in the scriptures. You've no idea how precious that is to us. We don't find this everywhere. But uh, you have inspired me with your response, your presence, your questions, the conversations we've had. And it's been a real treat to be with you this weekend. I had not been to Erie before, but now I had heard, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ear. Now my eye sees you, and I like what I see. We are grateful to Pastor Harris for the invitation to come here and for the opportunity that uh, the Lord has given us. We are here to share the word. It's been a delight to break bread with you. This is the most important thing God's people can do together, is to eat at his table. The New Testament never tells us that when you come to church, you've got to have music. It doesn't tell us that when you come to church, you have to have a sermon. But it does tell us, whenever you gather, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Drink. This is my blood. It's the most important thing we can do together. So if you do nothing else with God's people, we must do this. No, we don't must. We get to. It's a privilege. And it's been a delight of mine after two wonderful days to break bread with you. That's been a treat. I'd like to turn your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. Yes, Deuteronomy. The name is unfortunate. Deuteronomy, second law. You want to kill the message of a book? Call it second law. And we've been doing that since the Septuagint, the Greek translation in about 150, 165 BC. It's an unfortunate word in the German tradition. This book is called Fifth Moses. You have 1st Moses, 2nd Moses, 3rd. That's better than 2nd Law. The book itself is actually called, These Are the Words. And this is a transcript. This book is a transcript of Moses' final farewell sermons. They have more in common with Jesus' upper room discourse in John 13, 14, 15. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Moses' last sermons are of that order, and that's how we need to read the book of Deuteronomy. But our text this morning is chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. The grace and wonder of salvation. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard it and still live? 
Or has any God ever dared to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another by daring acts, by signs, by wonders and war and mighty hand and outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might teach you. On earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power to drive you out, out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore, take it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commands, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Father, we pray now that you would open up this word to our ears our minds, and our hearts. May we leave this place rejoicing in the salvation you have granted us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I hope you'll excuse me if I get a little excited about the message this morning. This is a fabulous text, and we can't just read it Casually, boringly. It is the climax of Moses' first of four sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. His farewell addresses. He gathers his congregation around him and now he gives them his final charge. In this address, which takes us from chapters 1 through 4, he has been summarizing what the ex people have experienced of God's grace in the last few uh, decades. He begins, uh, or he begins by actually telling the story backwards, starting with the most recent events, how we spent 38 years in the desert, the Lord provided for us, how we came to this side of the river and we encountered Sion and Og, the Amorite kings, and the Lord gave us victory over them. And now we are ready to march into the promised land. But... In this chapter, he gives the most distant events. He starts this, well actually this chapter consists of three events that happened at least 40 years ago. He starts in verses 1 to 8 by recounting God's amazing grace in giving us his revelation. The nations will look on you and see what an awesomely privileged people you are for which nation has a God so near whenever they call upon him and which nation has statutes and ordinances as righteous as this whole Torah I am setting before you. What a gift. 
That's 1 to 8. Then in verses 9 to 31, he talks about God's privilege in covenant. God has entered into a personal covenant relationship with them. And this happened at Sinai. And now we come to the event that started it all. God's grace in salvation. The Lord has rescued us from Egypt. That's where our story started. He's telling the Israelites. I I hope as you noticed as I was reading this that there's a two-part refrain that came through. Know therefore that the Lord, He is God. There is no other. Know therefore that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. This happens twice, which is a reminder that the point of all of these experiences was not actually simply to get Israel out of Egypt. The point was revelatory, that the world might know who God is. That was the point. But now let's back up a little bit. We're a little ahead of ourselves. This passage breaks down into three parts. They say a good sermon has three points. Well, Moses has three points, three parts to this sermon, and they are all signaled by significant verbs. If you look at verse 32, indeed, ask now. Verses 35 and 39, twice, he says, so no. And then in verse 40, he says, so keep. Ask. No. Keep. And of course, in doing this, he's reminding us that there are three lessons we need to learn in the light of our salvation. The first is a history lesson. Ask now if anything like this has ever happened before. The second is a theology lesson. What do we learn about God out of that event? And the the third is a practical lesson in Francis Schaeffer's terms, how then should we live? in light of the theology we have learned and the history we have recovered. So those are the three. The history lesson. Through his incredible acts of power and the fulfillment of his promise to the ancestors, the Lord has rescued his people from the bondage of Egypt. The theology lesson. By reviewing these events, we draw the conclusion, only the Lord is God, there is no other. And then the practical lesson, in light of his saving actions, we are the beneficiaries. We should live grateful, joyful, obedient lives in the presence of God. But let's look more closely at these lessons. First of all, the history lesson. Boring. I know. That's old stuff. But you know... I fear for the future of the American Evangelical Church because we are losing the story. That's why this is so important. That every week we may be reminded from whence we have come. We are not self-made people. We are here by the grace of God. And so, let's start with a history lesson. Ask now. With this question, Moses is inviting his congregation to do some research, to investigate, to to explore. Has what you experienced ever happened in history before? 
Notice he says, chronologically, start your research from the creation of the world. Since God made man on the earth to the present, that's the chronological scope of this research, and then geographically, from one end of the earth or the end of the heaven to the other, from one horizon to the other. See if anything like this has ever happened before. That's the scope. This is exhausting. I work with, them doctoral, with, with doctoral students, and, and the challenge for a doctoral student is to be utterly and totally exhaustive in your research. So that by the time you're done your project, you know more about it than anybody else on earth. That's the point. Well, that's what he's asking them to do here. Go ahead, check every library in the world that's ever existed. First of all, check the history books. Notice, he, he sets the agenda with four questions. Question number one, and it's right here in the text. Has anything been done like this great thing before? This is the history lesson. Are there any books that talk about this? Second, it's not only history or has anything been heard like this. Now we're beyond history. We're not just talking about those boring books. We're talking about the exciting literature, mythology, fables. Has anybody written a story like this to entertain? Ever imagined anything like this? That's the question. Third question has, now he gets specific, has any people ever heard the voice of God speaking to them from the midst of the fire and live to talk about it? Check the book, see if there's anything like this. And the fourth question, has any God ever dared to do what Israel's God has done? And now he focuses on God. Has any God ever done what Yahweh, the God of Israel, has done for Israel? And of course, this is going to be a very short dissertation. Because the answer to every question is two letters. No. 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 And no. Now, the bibliography will reach from here to Chicago. But the dissertation itself is minuscule. For no great event like this has ever happened. No one has ever told a story like this before. No people have ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire. No God has ever dared to do what Israel's God has done. Check the records. You won't find anything like this anywhere in the history of humankind. It's an absolutely unique event. This is not how gods operate. This is not what people experience. What Yahweh has done for Israel personally invaded the land of Egypt, the mighty na mightiest nation on earth, snatched Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh and brought them to yourself. You, you remember God's words at Mount Sinai when they finally get to Exodus 19.4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
unprecedented story. But the way he tells it here now in the following verses, he talks about this story by simply summarizing what God has done. And he mentions seven expressions that demonstrate who God is. Has any God ever done this? In verse 34, gone to take for himself a nation from within another nation. And now you have seven expressions by daring acts, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, and great terrified wonders. This is what God has done. Seven words. And in scripture, when you see seven like this, you get the feeling he's making a point. The interesting thing is here, the emphasis on the strong hand and outstretched arm. If any of you have ever had nothing else to do, but you've gone to the library and you've explored uh, Egyptian history. And if you look at Egyptian art, you will notice that in Egyptian artistic renderings of the pharaohs, regularly, you can find hundreds of these pictures, the pharaoh is typically portrayed as standing there like this, holding his poor victim, his captive, with his left hand grabbing him by the hair or whatever, and, in his, and with his right arm raised with a big club. Strong hand outstretched arm what the Lord did when he rescued Israel from Egypt was demonstrate that, that that's chicken feed that's peanuts that's kindergarten Pharaoh's nothing his strong he beats Pharaoh and his gods at their own game Moses here has issued a challenge to produce a parallel experience from any source in history. Of course, it's impossible. This event is unparalleled. The idea is unheard of. The experience would be intolerable. And the power of Yahweh in all of this is awesome. This is not how God's operates. But this is what the Lord has done. But this is not all. Why did he do this? And in order to answer the question, he has to push us back even farther. Why did God save Israel? Now look at verses 36 and 37. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he let you see his great fire. You heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers... He chose their descendants after them. Oh, so the story doesn't actually begin in Egypt. Who are the fathers? It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He loved Abraham. That's why he saved Israel. But of course, now we have to understand what he means by the word love. Our understanding of this word these days is so off base and so shallow. To us, love is a Valentine's Day word. We're supposed to love everybody. Why can't we all just get along and love everybody? Which, of course, means we're supposed to have nice, warm feelings 
Even about people we don't like. Love everybody. Send, you know, tell them. If you love somebody, tell them you love them. But of course, this isn't how the Bible uses the word. In the Bible, love is never just an emotional term. A pink word. Love is always an action word. In fact, a Jewish scholar, Abraham Malamat, argues we should never translate this Hebrew word, I have, with one English word, love. It, it should always be rendered, demonstrate love. In Deuteronomy, it's always love and obey, love and serve, love and walk in his ways. God loved the ancestors and rescued their descendants. Love always works that way. It's this way in the New Testament as well. You've read John 3.16 somewhere. For God so loved the world that he sent roses. <laughs> no. God so loved the world that he wrote a beautiful song. God so loved the world that he said, I love you. <laughs> no, what does it say? God demonstrated his love for the world in this. And what follows is not so much the extent of God's love. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. That's not really it. Here's where the Holman Christian Standard Bible has it absolutely right. This is the way God demonstrated love. God demonstrated his covenant commitment to the world in this, by this, by giving his only son. And that's what Hebrew word love, uh, that illustrates it. Love is an expression of, here's my definition, biblically speaking. Covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the interest of the other person. That's love. And of course, that is what God demonstrated in Christ. Philippians 2. He gave up everything for us. And this is what he calls us men to do for our wives in in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and don't forget the anniversary. <laughs> or birthdays. Or whatever. Husbands, love your wives and be sure and send a valentine. Send, you know, surprise her with her. No, he doesn't. Husbands, demonstrate love for your wives as Christ demonstrated his love for us and gave himself for us. Love is always an action word, always an action word, never primarily an emotional word. Because God was committed to the ancestors, he rescued Israel. This is the proof of the love. The proof is in the pudding. And this is an amazing pudding. That's the history lesson. Now let's go to the theology lesson. Why did God do this? And the point is clear. It's revelatory. 
Know therefore, or these things you have seen, that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other. God didn't rescue Israel out of Egypt simply that Israel might get out of Egypt. That would have been a noble project, I suppose. But this whole thing is not about Israel. Several times in the earlier narratives of Exodus, the Lord had said to, to Moses, When I get you all out of Egypt, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. Then the world will know that I am the Lord. That was the point. It's revelatory. God did all of these amazing acts to demonstrate that he is God. There is no other. And of course, Moses will have lots to say about other gods. Just earlier in this chapter, in verse 28, if the people persist in idolatry once they're in the land, the Lord says, he, Moses says, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You'll be left few in number where the Lord drives you. There you may serve God's the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Gods of wood and stone. It's amazing when you look at these images of ancient idols from Palestine, the eyes are always bulging. Because they long desperately for the gods to see. And they always have huge ears. They long for a god who will hear and a big mouth. But what's the problem? They're wood and stone. The psalmist says, they have eyes, but they don't see, ears, but they don't hear, mouths, but they don't speak, feet, they can't walk, they can't help you. In fact, in chapter 29, verse 16, Moses doesn't only call them wood and stone, he calls them gilulim. That's X-rated language. Do you know what gilulim are? The word means these round things. I grew up on a farm. We had sheep. <laughs> you know what sheep droppings look like? Little peanuts. That's what he calls idols. Round pellets of dung. Now, if we wanted to translate to get the equivalent effect, we would translate this word actually with a four-letter word that starts with S and ends with T. That's exactly it. That's, that's the point. You worship that. You bow down to that. That's what idols are. But of course, not so God. He's the living God. He's the gracious God. He's the awesome God. He beats Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt at their own game. Know therefore. My friend, do you know him? Do you know this God? Has he done this for you? And then he concludes with the practical lesson. Good preacher that Moses is, he's never satisfied simply that his congregation can pass a history test. Or even that they can pass a theology test. 
sign all the right doctrines and explain everyone sophisticatedly. No, look at verse 40. What, how then should, let, in Francis Schaeffer's words, how then should we live? Notice how it starts. This is the history lesson. How then should we think? Know therefore that Yahweh is God. But having come to the right theological conclusion, don't stop there. How then should we live? Verse 40. So you shall keep his statutes and his commands which I am giving you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving to you. And of course, this is a fabulous text because it reminds us of the biblical understanding of the relationship between obedience and salvation. You will notice that this text comes at the end of the passage. It doesn't come at the beginning. Moses doesn't start out with by saying, keep the commands and the Lord will rescue from Egypt. No. God didn't come, come to Moses, send Moses to Egypt and tell Moses, here, give them the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the laws. And as soon as you can check them off that I'm doing every one of them, as soon as you can check off this list, I'll get you out of here. Salvation never works that way. Salvation is always unearned and undeserved. And there's only one way out of Egypt. What's that? By faith. What did it take to get Israel out of Egypt? Can you trust God to hold up the walls of water as you walk through? I've never seen this before. Normally, walls don't stand up like this, like jello. Can you trust God? Will you walk through? That's all it took. No preconditions. In fact, they proved very quickly that they, they had all the preconditions so that if I were God, I would not have rescued them. Look at the golden calf and all the other murmurings and rebellions of the Israelites as soon as they're out of Egypt, proving that, hey, we didn't earn this one. And if we ever make it to the promised land, it's all of grace. But here Moses is sounding like Paul in Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, what? That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's your reasonable service. King James has it right here. I beseech you, therefore. And when you see the therefore, you have to ask, wherefore? In light of what? And he has spent 11 chapters talking about God's salvation in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In view of what Christ has done for us, how then should we live? And that's exactly what we have here. This lesson always arises, this practical lesson, out of, or it is applied out of a spirit of gratitude and joy for salvation we have already received. 
It's an important lesson for us. There's some of us who think we can never match up to what God expects. He'll, he can never save me. <laughs> You're right. You can never match up to being the kind of person that deserves salvation. It's always by grace. Alone. Nothing we can do to earn salvation. But on the other hand, having been saved, you can't live the same. So keep his commands. This is not a legalistic order. This is an invitation. Tell God, thank you. He is your Redeemer. He is your Savior. He's the Cosmic Lord. You are His vassal, His servant. And your role is simply to say thank you with all of your life. This is the response. The call to salvation is absolutely unconditional. But the blessings and the fulfillment of the calling to which God has called us is absolutely conditional. Notice, keep his commands that you may live long in the land. Just previous to this, in, uh, we read the verse in verses uh, 26 and 27. If you persist in your idolatry and in your rebellion, I'll kick you out of the land. The promises of God, the blessings of God are there for those who say thank you to God with their lives. But by now you are no doubt bored with these ancient history and theoretical and theology lesson. If that's the case, uh, if that is the case, we and not Israel are to be pitied. Few texts in all of Scripture are more profound and more exhilarating than these verses. These should inspire us, Christian readers, every day, today and every day, to live in grateful response. What eternal lessons. I know Moses is talking to Israel here. But we need to ask, what eternal lessons does this text teach us? And I see two or three. First... For us, God's salvation is achieved at tremendous expenditure of divine energy and power. You know, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. But it's another thing to get us out of the clutches of Satan himself. And the kingdom of darkness and sin, that's a whole nother story. But that is what he has done. God has demonstrated his power. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but he has raised us by his power. You find emphases like this all over the New Testament talking about what God accomplishes in Christ. Notice, for instance, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. This is Exodus language. That's taken right out of Deuteronomy 4. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew, that's at Deuteronomy, and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It makes me think that Paul has been to school with Moses. Sounds just like Moses. It's exactly the same message. But then you go on, uh, or you back up a little bit in the Gospel of Romans and go right to the beginning, and here is his introduction to the Gospel of God. Paul writes, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship. That's what the resurrection of Christ demonstrated. He is the victor over the kingdom of death and hell. That takes divine power. You can't get yourself out of there. But through the resurrection, he has demonstrated this power. Through this death and resurrection, Jesus proves that he is this Yahweh. He is the Redeemer of Israel. He is the one who rescues us. A second lesson. In this brief sermon on the, on the grace of salvation, Moses demonstrates the relationship between saving grace and works. We already talked about this. But you know Jesus' words to his disciples. He says in John, If you love me, Tell me. Is that what he says? If he loved me, write a nice song about me. If you love me, make a nice meal. No. If you love me, keep my commands. And of course, it's the same deal. Love is covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the interest of the person whose name we now bear. And if we're not doing that, then we don't love him. Of course, this is not a matter of earning God's favor. It's a matter of celebrating God's favor. Those who love the Lord keep his commands. That's the test. Well, Where does this leave you? I get excited when I read about the grace of God in my salvation. I get excited when I read about the grace of God in Israel's salvation. I get excited when I read about the grace of God in people whose lives I have seen turned around. When God's power demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ takes root. Have you? Let me conclude by paraphrasing Deuteronomy 4:32 to 40 and actually Christianizing it. This is a wonderful text for us, but let me put it into our New Testament terms. And you'll recognize a lot of it from the New Testament. You'll also recognize its roots in this text. So, here to conclude. Ask now. 
of the days that are past, which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of the heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or ever been heard of. Did any people ever encounter their gods directly as you have encountered him and still live? John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Ever seen a God like this? Has any God ever dared to invade the kingdom of darkness? Take a people for himself from the midst of the, that kingdom by trials and signs and wonders and war. A mighty hand and outstretched arm and great deeds of terror. All of which Jesus Christ your God has done for you on the cross before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is God. There is no other. Out of the heaven he came as the divine word that you might, he might reveal the Father to you. And on earth he revealed his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And because he loved the ancestors and chose their spiritual offspring after them, he brought you out of the kingdom of darkness by great power, disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And you'll recognize that from Colossians. In order to grant us an inheritance, since we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Know therefore today, lay it to heart, that Jesus Christ the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ the Lord. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with faith, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That is the gospel. That is our story. That's why we too know God. And that's why we are inspired to live for him.